This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Tel Aviv University professor Yoav Pelled, whose latest book is The Religionization of Israeli Society, helps us understand the results of the September 17th election. That's the second Israeli election this year. Likud Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu got 32 seats and Benny Gantz of Blue and White got 33, but neither have a path to form a coalition that would get the 61 seats out of 120 needed to rule. Secular far-right nationalist Avigdor Lieberman refuses to form a coalition with Netanyahu unless he can be acting prime minister, and Netanyahu needs the immunity granted to the prime ministership from the indictments he faces. President Rifflin asked Netanyahu to form a government, but he hasn't been able to do it, leaving open the possibility of a third election in a single year. We'll ask Yoav Pellet to explain the election results and what will happen if Netanyahu can't form a government. We'll also get Yoav to give us a deeper understanding of the ascendancy of the Israeli right. All this on Jacobin Radio in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Yoav Pellet with us. And as I just said, the second Israeli election held in one year in September didn't go as Bibi Netanyahu had hoped. Benny Gantz of the Blue and White Party got 32 seats to Netanyahu's 31. So everything now is about forming that coalition. The secular far-right nationalist Lieberman has refused to form that coalition with Netanyahu to give the coalition the 61 votes out of 120 needed to rule. And Netanyahu's attempt at voter suppression of Arab parties backfired and increased their turnout. President Reuven Rivlin has asked Netanyahu to form a new government, which for us probably seems puzzling given the result, but Netanyahu has not been able to do that. So what is next? Yoav's going to help us explain and to give us a deeper understanding of the Israeli right. And it's probably worth noting here that the moderate parties, Labor and the Democratic camp, got a mere 11 seats between them. And we're going to know more about whether or not Netanyahu can escape his corruption indictments, which is his heart's desire. In fact, Gorshin Gorenborg wrote that in April and then September, the two elections this year, Netanyahu's main goal was to put together a right-wing coalition that would pass two laws, the first giving him immunity and the second to keep the Supreme Court from overturning the first. He concluded that a third election is possible. Well, Yoav Pellet is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Tel Aviv University in Israel. We're speaking to him there. His latest book, written with Harit Herman Pellet, is The Religionization of Israeli Society. And his other books include, co-authored with Gershon Shaffer, Being Israeli, and with John Ehrenberg, Israel and Palestine, Alternative Perspectives, on statehood. Yoav Pellet, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thank you. Hello. So let's go over the results of the second election and why there's now a standoff. Can you sort of explain, I guess, first for listeners here, how it is that given Netanyahu getting fewer seats than Benny Gantz, that the president asked him to form the government? Okay, well, uh, first, the current numbers, the most up-to-date numbers are 33 and 32, 33 blue and oh. white, 32 Likud. Okay. But uh, these numbers are very misleading. Israeli politics are not really about parties, they're about blocks. <laughs> In a sense, it's not that different than the American uh, political system. We have two parties. We have many parties that join into two blocks. 
So it's more, almost the same. Now, Netanyahu has 55 seats right now in his bloc. Gantz, on paper, has 57 or 54, depending how you count. But of those, either 10 or 13 are Arab members of the Knesset, which are not legitimate coalition partners. So in reality, he has a lot less. He has 47 or maybe 44. So this is why the the president Rivlin had to uh, give the mandate to form a government to Bibi, because Bibi has a much larger bloc. He's much closer to 61 than Gantz's. But on the other hand, I just saw that it looks like as of today, Netanyahu said that he can't do it. So then then what happens? Well, he can do it because he is 55. Now, like you said in the introduction, the the kingpin here is is Lieberman. Mm -hmm. Lieberman, who's very right-wing, who came from Likud, who many times was in the Likud, or in coalition with Likud, all of a sudden... He makes this demand. The demand is, is not against Bibi, at least not explicitly. It's against the ultra-religious parties. All of a sudden, he discovered, Lieberman discovered, that he's a this great secularist. <laughs> so he's saying he's not going to uh, get into a coalition government with Bibi if Bibi takes in the ultra-Orthodox parties, which means, again, Bibi will not have 61 unless he takes blue and white. Blue and white say we're not going to serve in a government headed by an almost indicted criminal. This is why the deadlock, the only reasonable way that uh, you can think of of getting out of the deadlock is for Lieberman to join Bibi and all the religious parties. And in return for, like you said, being acting prime minister or what is called here rotation, taking turns with Bibi of being prime minister, at least if you think about it rationally in terms of just pure political interest and discount all the campaign rhetoric, this looks like the reasonable way out of this deadlock. But it hasn't happened yet. Before we get into, I want to go over, Yoav Pelot, all of the constituencies behind the various parties, how they differ, how they're similar. Before we do that, let's, because we started with, you know, the problem with Lieberman and getting into Lieberman, but it's really about Netanyahu's corruption indictments, because if he's removed and and Lieberman is named acting prime minister, then presumably he wins the plum, you know, the prize. But what about those indictments? Is that avoiding them and getting immunity Netanyahu's major motivation, as you know, as I stated in the intro? Yes, absolutely. And again, it's a little bit more complicated. Okay. Every member of Knesset, according to the current law, every member of Knesset can get immunity from prosecution. He just has to ask for it, and the, and the Knesset has to approve it, and in Bibi's case, they will approve it. There's no question. The problem is somebody could appeal that to the High Court of Justice, which is the Supreme Court acting as an equity court. That's why he needs the other law. The other law, which is technically called the Nevertheless Clause, the other law, <laughs> yeah. Nevertheless Clause, is, says that even if the High Court disqualifies a law, the Knesset can reenact it if it does so by a certain majority. There's a big, big debate what kind of a majority and so on and so on. So that's why Bibi needs that law much more than he needs the immunity law. Immunity he already has, like every member of Knesset. That's not the issue. Wow. Okay, so let's go into the various parties. And, and maybe we should, before we get into Likud and Blue and Mike, 
blue and white. Maybe we should just start with Lieberman. So you you said that he's now discovered his secularism. He's a Russian immigrant, and so that would probably make a, a lot of sense. But how do you explain this in terms of, let's say, Israeli society? And that means between, I guess, liberal and religious Zionism. Well, Lieberman grew from five to eight seats between April and now. And that's because the five seats is the hardcore immigrants from the former Soviet Union, the older generation. These are the five seats. The three seats, amazingly, are liberal, liberal Zionist Israelis who are more or less secular, who believe he's very, very sudden, turn into a secularist. So people who used to be in, in white and blue, and blue and white, or in labor, they moved to Lieberman, believing that wow. uh, he's really going to fight religious compulsion here. Oh, These are the extra three that he gained between April and September. One of the things that I guess I should ask you to explain, Yoav, is you know, how these other parties that you've just mentioned and Lieberman with them, and even, I guess, throwing in the moderate parties or what you know the press says or the left parties of labor, how you know they differ in terms of what we usually understand is right, left, and center. So well, I would say that, yeah. well, Likud is, is far right. It's clear. Blue and white, I would say, is a moderate right. And uh, labor, and is called, now called democratic camp, used to be called merit, is, uh, is center. In terms of the constituency, Likud, I would say, are the, more or less the Mizrahi, that is uh, people who came from uh, the Muslim world, but who are uh, relatively well off. I would say lower and middle class and lower middle class Mizrahim. This is the basic constituency of Likud. Blue and white is the traditional labor constituency, which is middle and upper middle Ashkenazi mm-hmm. class. And labor, what's left of it, and the democratic camp, what's left of it is, you know, it's really too small to, to matter. They are also, mostly they are from the Ashkenazi middle class, the more liberal ones. Okay, so, but then now, in terms of these parties that you've now said, Likud's far right, blue and white's moderate, the democratic camp is what we would call center, do they define themselves in terms of the welfare state or economic and class questions? How do they define themselves? Yes, not not in so many words, not in so many words. Uh, Labor, this time, labor, I've been saying for years that Labour should have changed its name to the Capital Party, not <laughs> yeah. many, many years ago. Right. This time they tried to, to play on what they call the, the social card. That's class. That's how they call class. They say the social card. The social card. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't work. It didn't work. In the, this time, in September, Labour got exactly as many as it did in April, the, the head of it was changed, and he included another woman, supposedly a, a right-winger, but supposedly somebody with a social conscience. And it was supposed to bring in uh, Mizrahi, uh, the, you know, poor Mizrahi uh, voters, but it didn't work. And you see, really, there is, no, there is no debate in Israel. There is no difference of opinion in Israel regarding the economy. Everybody is more or less some kind of a neoliberal. There's really no debate about it, except the the Communist Party. But uh, the Communist Party is an Arab party, so they're outside the game, really. 
Wow. So it so Israel then it, would you say that this is because the so-called national question or perhaps just Zionism is the key issue and it sort of overrides any class considerations and what does that mean in terms of even let's say the the social composition of the society does it really mean that that anyone who is Jewish does so much better that the class question doesn't matter? It's not that every uh, Jew is doing better than every Arab. There's a, in, in recent years, I would say in recent decades even, there's a growing uh, Arab middle class. There's a great prosperity. I was uh, trying to, to persuade uh, Bob Brenner that there's <laughs> no liberalism here brought prosperity. He, he couldn't believe it. He didn't, he didn't want to believe it, but it's true. And this includes the Arabs, too, less than the Jews, but the Arabs, many, many, many are, are prospering. This is really uh, the situation. There is, it's not an issue, but what you said is also interesting because you're absolutely right that the national issue, national issue overrides everything else, except in these elections and in the previous one, the national issue wasn't even on the table. Nobody talks about the occupation of the Palestinians anymore. Nobody talks about peace. Nobody talks about two states. Nothing. This is already completely disappeared. It's because everybody accepts the fact that Israel is going to rule over those Palestinian territories, and there's no question about it. So there isn't even a debate about the national question, let alone the class issues. So the entire debate, and you said it before, the entire debate was yes, baby, no, baby, in April and in September again. So this is really interesting, Yoav, because that, the next question I was going to ask you about is this larger issue of the occupation and the Palestinian question, which is certainly an issue in the United States and not so much in, in ruling sectors, but in the Jewish community. And you said a couple of incredible things that neoliberalism actually benefited Israeli society. And um, you know, I understand you know, that you said Bob Brenner couldn't believe it. It's hard to believe since it's produced inequality at such a large scale everywhere else. It did. It, and did, is it, being... did, it did produce inequality. <laughs> no, it did produce tremendous inequality. Israel is now neck to neck with the U.S. in terms of inequality, of income inequality. But still, even the lower ones are prospering relative to where they were before. And what about then on the issue of the welfare state? I mean, one of the things that, you know, let's say just the Jewish community here in the United States has always bragged about how wonderful Israel's welfare state is and its, you know, universal health care system and housing subsidies and all the rest of it. So that's been, has how much has that been dismantled and how much is that an issue? It has been dismantled, definitely. Out-of-pocket expenses for medical services, for healthcare services, medical services in Israel today is second only to the U.S. in the OECD countries. The public health system, of course, it's much better than the non-existent one in the U.S., uh-huh. but it's, it's, got, it's gotten a lot worse. But, again, because in terms of market, pro, in terms of market results, pe- people are doing better. They are buying a private insurance. A lot of people buy private insurance of two kinds. I don't want to get into technical details, but there are two kinds or two layers of private insurance. And about 60% of the population buy that in addition to what they get from the public health system. So they don't fit the, the problems of the 
public healthcare system is is not so people know about it of course and talk about it but it's not so pressing because people can afford buying private insurance in terms of all the other fields of the welfare state you have the same thing there's cut by very serious bad cutbacks for instance unemployment insurance been cut back tremendously but there is no unemployment so it's not an issue you know you can go uh, through the, the different fields the different areas and you, Again, you see the same picture. The market compensates for the cutbacks in the welfare state. Okay, so then let's go now then to, you know, what you said was perhaps maybe it's shocking to hear in this country that the issue of the occupation and, you know, the Arab-Israeli or the Palestinian question didn't really figure in this election and doesn't seem to really figure anymore in Israeli society, I guess you would have to say that's uh, Likud and Netanyahu's victory. But how is that really the case, given – maybe you could just explain it a little further. Well, it is, as Horit and I argue in our book that you mentioned before, it is really the victory of religious Zionism, because religious Zionists were from the very, very beginning pushing to, to, towards that uh, point, towards that conclusion that uh, those territories are part of, of the land of Israel, of the state of Israel, and this is it. And now everybody's internalized it, and so it's not an issue anymore. Everybody, re- I mean, everybody, when they are honest, realize that there's no two-state solution anymore. It's done because of the number of settlers and the way they are spread all around the West Bank. If there's no uh, two-state solution, what is there to talk about? What is there to argue about? That's a great victory, and that's part, or maybe the essential part, of the religionization uh, process that we wrote about. Well, and that book is The Religionization of Israeli Society. We talked about it right here. It's published by Rutledge and Yoav and Norit Herman Pellet wrote it, Harit it is just out, so you should really get it. Explains a lot. But Yoav, let's go back to another question then. If the Palestinian question is no longer on the table in the same way, at least in Israeli Jewish society, what about other issues of foreign policy? Here, of course, as you know, there's a large debate about you know whether or not the tail wags the dog and whether Netanyahu's warlike stance toward Iran has influenced neocons in the United States. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the way that neoliberal you know, policy and neolibs and neocons come together in Israeli society and who represents what in terms of foreign policy and especially with the rest of the larger Middle East and Iran. Well, Iran, is, Iran of course, is the big issue. Uh, it's Bibi's uh, big issue. It's been reported that uh, Israel was, uh, was really almost on the verge of attacking Iran's nuclear facilities a few years ago, and it's the military that stopped it. So this is a very big issue, and uh, initially it looked like Trump would be completely in Bibi's camp, but after he fired Bolton, everybody started saying, well, maybe Bibi miscalculated. Trump is, uh, is not so much in his pocket as everybody believed. And we now see that Trump is very hesitant about doing anything about Iran, which I think is is in his favor. I don't think I don't say it as a criticism. Right. And the, the other, the the more pressing issue is what's going on with Gaza, where Gaza has been under very tight siege for many many years, and they react by firing these rockets occasionally. And that I think that's the most uh, foreign policy, if you can call it foreign policy. I'm not sure it's foreign policy issue that's on the agenda and that uh, people are very disturbed about. 
Okay, so yeah, before we just, you know, I want to go back now again because Israel is is it looks like given the failure of Netanyahu to get to sixty one seats, you said he's got fifty five. You know, what's really going to happen next? And you already mentioned earlier the Arab parties, and we know that Netanyahu tried to suppress their vote and it backfired on him. Is is this of any importance in terms of this larger calculus? Well, not in terms of coalition building, because Gantz said many, many times before that he's not going to rely on uh, on the Arab parties, even like Rabin did. Rabin was the only one who relied on them without without taking them into his coalition, but relying on their support from outside the coalition. And you know what happened to him. Right. So Gantz said he's not, not even going to rely on the support of the Arab parties from outside the coalition. So for all practical purposes, the 13 seats in the Knesset don't really count for anything in terms of forming a government. The whole game is only among the Jewish members, and among the Jewish members, the so-called center-left is inferior, greatly inferior the right wing. And what about, and in terms of that center-left, I assume here you're talking about blue and white and the Democratic camp, or are you completely forgetting about the Democratic camp? I don't know. But is this, is there key difference? It's simply about Netanyahu's criminality. What is the key difference between blue and white and Likud? Yeah, this is the only difference. The only (laughs) only issue, the only issue is uh, Netanyahu's probable indictment on October 2nd, like you said, there'll be a hearing. I mean, there's already, a, like, a, it's a pre-indictment has already happened. Here, there's no grand jury. It's done by the Attorney General. The Attorney General already pre-indicted him, but that's subject to a hearing. VIPs get this kind of treatment. So the hearing is on October 2nd, and the conventional wisdom is that the hearings are not going to change anything and that he will be indicted. And uh, so this is really the big issue, because if, even if he's indicted as a prime minister, he doesn't have to resign. If he were just cabinet minister, he would have had to resign. This is the law that stands now. And anyway, he could ask for, like I said before, he could ask the Knesset for immunity, and the Knesset will give him this immunity. For that purpose, he will have the 61, and then somebody will appeal to the High Court of Justice, and then it depends what the court will say. But people, the commentators say that Bibi may even start a war, supposedly even try to start a war about a few days before the elections. Again, the military stopped him. Wait, please develop that. that so start a war, you mean, in, with Gaza or, or with what? Gaza, yes, with Gaza. With Gaza. I don't know if, if uh, you noticed that in the United States there was one incident where Bibi was giving a campaign speech in, in the southern town and all of a sudden rockets started uh, falling, not where he was, but in the town. And uh, he was whisked away and it looked on television like he was running away, which is very humiliating, uh, two or three days before the elections. The reports are that he tried to react in such a way that it would start a real war, but then the military blocked him from doing that. But you know, he's as prime minister, he may try to do that again, or he may try, who knows, Trump may come to his rescue with who knows what kind of uh, peace plan that uh, that's being, you know, talked about so much. So as a prime minister, he still has a chance, maybe, of getting out of all these uh, legal problems. Uh, if he's not prime minister, there's no chance. That's why, for him, it's desperately important. And his party is, so far solidly behind him. 
That was going to be my my next question, Yov, was whether or not there was any sort of infighting inside the Likud party to get rid of uh, Netanyahu so that they can still, you know, be the senior partner in the coalition and form the government. Or is that something completely right. impossible? You know, if there is, it's, it, it's not on the surface. On the surface, they're all solidly united behind him, even though... We, we know, I mean, we, the journalists and the commentators know there's a great deal of hate towards him among the Likud leadership. They're all behind him now, at least that's what they say, and there's no signs of, of, of anything different. Because, they, you see, Bibi, very much like Trump, has a base of, I would say, about 40% of the population wow. who would do anything for him, who would go after him no matter what. And uh, these Likud uh, you know, second-level leaders are afraid of the base because Likud has primaries, and they fear that if they come out against Bibi, try to replace him, uh, he w- they will be punished in the next primaries. So, so far, they are all very quiet. So that takes us back, finally, Yoav, to what's likely to happen. So on October 2nd, we're going to know whether or not the indictments go forward. And in that case... No, no, no. No, no. no? On October 2nd, it's only the hearing. Oh, the hearing. Okay. A month or two for the attorney general to process what's happening, what happened in the hearings and come to a decision. But so on the other side of the question, you mentioned that some thought that Netanyahu would would go for the distraction and start a war. He hasn't been able to form a government. He hasn't been able to persuade Lieberman thus far. So is another election on the cards? What do you think is going to happen? That's a distinct possibility that people are raising. A lot of people are saying that this, I mean, legally, legally, this would be the the option, if, if, if nobody can form a government, at the end, this is the only option. I find it very difficult to believe that they will go for the third election within a few months. I mean, it's, it's really, um, it would be crazy. But who knows? Maybe it will go that way. I still think that Lieberman is just waiting for a, for a deal in which he will get a, a very high reward for joining. I think that's, because to me, this looks very reasonable. But... Uh, a lot of the commentators now say that a third election is, is, is probably the most, the most likely outcome of this. But then who knows what will happen in the third election? Nobody can be sure that they will gain from it. Right. So there'd be no point in doing it. And so the real key question then does Yoav come back to the indictments? Because if Netanyahu feels secure in power, then maybe he can name Lieberman as acting prime minister. But if he feels that he may be removed all bets are on the table. Is that what you're saying? Well, Bibi avoided avoided nominating a deputy for all the many, many years that he's been prime minister. It is at least rumored that in, in May, Lieberman would have gone in if he was offered to be the acting. Acting means really deputy will be, come acting if Bibi cannot, be, uh, cannot continue or suspend himself or something. Wow. So, but now he may be forced to do that, and it makes... A, great deal of sense that Lieberman would, would go for it because Lieberman, that's what Lieberman wants. He wants to be prime minister. And this looks like a, a good way of, of getting that. Wow. So I think if you think rationally, that, that's the way out. But uh, who knows? Who knows? Many people, you know, many, the many people who say Lieberman will not go in with, with Bibi under any circumstances are right. It's very hard to know. Lieberman is very, very secretive, and it's a, it's a one-man party. It's a one-man show, so there are no leaks from there because he's the only one who, who makes any decision. 
Wow. Well, you know, Pellet, we've run out of time, but we're obviously going to have to call you again as this sort of unfolds. It's it's even more Byzantine, I think, than understanding our own political system. And you've brought a lot of clarity to it. And I want to thank you for that. Yoav Pellet is a professor emeritus of political science at Tel Aviv University. His latest book, written with Arit Herman Pellet is The Religionization of Israeli Society by Rutledge. It's a must read. You should get it. And his other books include Israel and Palestine, Alternative Perspectives on Statehood, and many more. Yoav, thanks for joining us today from Tel Aviv. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.